Let's turn our Bibles to Luke chapter number 1, Luke chapter number 1 this morning. And uh, man, I'm encouraged at what the Lord's going to do today and excited. This isn't a throwaway service. Heaven wants to meet with us today. God wants to do a work in us today. And we're not just trying to pass the time and get through and just have church so we're more spiritual than those that ain't. <laughs> uh, we want to hear from the Lord today. Amen. And I trust God will do a work in your heart today, and I trust He'll do a work in mine. Luke chapter number 1 this morning, and I'd like to begin reading in verse number 67. Luke chapter number 1, verse number 67. This begins by talking about a man by the name of Zacharias. Zacharias is the father of John the Baptist. The Bible says, And his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Ghost, and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he hath visited and redeemed his people, hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he sware to our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And thou, child, shalt be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Let's stop there and pray. Father, we love you this morning. Thank you for letting us be in the house of God. I pray that the Spirit of God would have the administration of this service. For Lord, I know that He'll glorify Christ. And I know that if Christ is lifted up and if He's glorified, we'll be helped. And Lord, we will be satisfied. So I pray that you'd speak to our hearts, magnify Christ, work in the heart of each and every person here. Lord, that's my heart this morning. I always want hearts to be worked in, but I'm asking specifically, Lord, for every heart in this building, including mine, to be worked in this morning for you to do a work in us and for us to hear from heaven. We'll be sure to thank you for what's accomplished. Lord, we love you and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You know, this passage of Scripture is filled with the miraculous. As we said a moment ago, we read about a man by the name of Zacharias. His and his uh, wife, Elizabeth, uh, have a child by the name of John. And we know him as John the Baptist. But this passage begins by describing for us, or this chapter does, all sorts of miraculous things that God is doing. You know, we have a miracle-working God. God was working actively then, and God's working actively now. And so this passage reminds us of what a miraculous God that we have. The angel Gabriel in this chapter appears to Zacharias and also to Mary, the mother of our Lord, telling them both of impending births. Zacharias doubts the words of the angel, and God strikes him speechless. There's people I'm praying for that for. Amen. Later, when the baby is born, Zacharias calls his name John in obedience to the command of the angel in verse 13. 
And immediately Zacharias' speech is restored and he lifts his voice in praise to the Lord. That's what we read this morning. His anthem of praise for what God has done in his home and is doing in the world and in the nation of Israel. In this incredible paragraph of praise, this old man of God does several things. In verse 68, he glorifies the Lord. Verses 68 through 75, he speaks of the coming Messiah. Verse 76 through the beginning of verse 78, he gives a prophecy concerning his own son, John. And he concludes in verses 78 and 79 with a fascinating reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to notice it with me. He says, through the tender mercy of God. Let me just pause there and say this. Jesus is the tender mercy of God. People say, well, preacher, how could a cruel God allow people to go to hell? Normally what they'll say is, how could a cruel God send people to hell? To which I would reply that a loving God has done everything to stop people from going to hell. If you go to hell, you'll have climbed over the grace of God to get there. And you'll have climbed over the commended love of God through Jesus Christ on Calvary to get there. And when we look at Christ on Calvary, He is the tender mercy of God. He is the olive branch extended. He is, to borrow reference from the book of Esther, He is the golden scepter that the king hands out to pardon those who have no right to be in His presence. He is the tender mercy of God. But then He says this, whereby... The day spring from on high hath visited us to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now, what a fascinating reference and title that is of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible calls him the day spring. Now, that's an interesting and unique title. The Bible describes and associates the Lord Jesus with light. John chapter number 1 tells us that in Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The Bible describes Him as the day star that has arisen. The Bible describes Him as the bright and morning star. Man, I'm glad He's not the son of the morning. The morning didn't create Him, and He wasn't created in the morning. He's not the son of the morning. That's the title given to Lucifer in Isaiah 14. And you may say, well, preacher, why are you saying that? Well, because there's some people's Bibles that say he is the son of the morning. Uh, But the word of God says that he's not the son of the morning. He's the bright morning star. He's what made the morning morning. Amen. He's the bright morning star. But here in this passage, he is described as the day spring. Now, what is a day spring? Well, we have a word that's a little more familiar to us that is the same concept, and it's the word sunrise. In other words, it calls Jesus the sunrise of God or the sunrise of heaven upon a dark and desperate world. Jesus is pictured as God's sun rising upon a world trapped in darkness. What a fascinating description that is. What a beautiful description that is. And what an instructive description that is of what the incarnation was and is and what the intentions and desires of the Lord Jesus Christ are towards this world and to you as an inhabitant of this world. Now, this is not new information to us as far as the principle, because we've read, if you've read the Gospels, you've read time and again how the Bible describes Jesus as the light of the world. He himself said in John twelve forty six, I am come a light into the world, that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. 
Now, obviously, it's not talking about physical darkness, but it's talking about darkness of a deeper kind. And these verses in Luke chapter number 1 tell us about the rays of heaven's sunrise and what they accomplish. We're told about three areas of life that are dramatically changed by the life that Christ brings into it. I want you to notice these three areas this morning that Christ gives light to a person if they will receive the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. Now, let me say this. If we abide in the darkness when we have light, then we gain no benefit benefit from the light. We've got to receive the light, the truth of God, the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the truth about ourselves from God if we want the light to transform us. We can't dwell in darkness and then wonder why the light doesn't give us clarity. We can't dwell in darkness and then wonder why the light does not give us warmth. We can't dwell in darkness and then wonder why the light doesn't give us safety and security. No, you've got to receive the light of the truth of the Word of God and of the gospel of Jesus Christ if you want to benefit from the light. But here in this passage, we're told the kind of light that Christ brings and to those to whom he is bringing it. I want you to notice three references in this chapter and then we'll be done. Look at verse number 79. The very first thing in reference to this day spring that your Bible says in reference to the Lord Jesus Christ as the sunrise of God or the sunrise of heaven on a dark world is it says this, to give light to them that sit in darkness. And you say, preacher, what does that mean? Well, I would say, number one this morning, that the Lord Jesus brings the light of liberty to those that sit in darkness. Uh, When the darkness is being described in this verse of Scripture, and by the way, not just this verse of Scripture, but many verses in Scripture, it is speaking of a darkness of the human condition, of the bondage of being bound in sin, bound by the devil, bound by this world system. But thank the Lord that Christ came, not that we might have more chains put on us, but rather that the chains might come off of us. He has come, not that He might stow us away in deeper darkness, but that he might shine the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and deliver us from the darkness that sin puts us in. In Isaiah chapter number 9, a famous, we would maybe call it a Christmas passage. It's really about the incarnation at large. But uh, one of the famous passages that deal with this season and this time of year. Did you know that this in Isaiah chapter 9, verse number 2, before it ever talks about uh, the promised son that would come uh, and his description in his incarnation, it says this in verse 2, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death Upon them hath the light shined. What a beautiful passage that is. And Matthew's gospel tells us in Matthew chapter 4 that this is a direct reference to the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. That the light that was seen, the light that scattered the darkness on this world and in the human condition is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you may say, well, preacher, that's wonderful, and I support that, and I think that's good, and I'm on board for that. But I don't sit in darkness this morning. How could Christ help me if I don't sit in darkness? Well, let me say this. There's more than one kind of darkness. There's a lot of different senses in which this darkness could apply to our lives. I would say certainly if you're sitting here lost today, that you are indeed sitting in darkness. 
I would say that if you're sitting here and you have been deceived by this world and its ways, then you're sitting in a semblance of darkness. And then the sad truth is, there's many folks, they may be saved by the grace of God, they may have the light of Christ in their life, but either through sin and disobedience, or merely through discouragement and despair, they sit in darkness in their lives to this very moment. Can I tell you, Christ came to deliver you from all three of those. I would say, number one this morning, He came to give light in the spiritual darkness of unbelief. What does the Bible mean when it describes those that had sat in the land of the shadow of death and had sat in great darkness, walked in darkness? Well, it's describing the state of Israel at the time that Christ came in His first advent. In other words, He came into a dark world. Israel was a spiritually dark place at this time. You say, preacher, how do you know it was spiritually dark? Dark enough that they crucified the Lord of glory. If you really want to get down to the brass tacks of matters, you can't lay that at the Romans' feet. You can't lay it at the common Jews' feet. If you want to look for the source and heart of the conspiracy to crucify the Lord of glory, you have to look to the Sanhedrin. You have to look to the Pharisees. You have to look to the religious leaders of the day. You say, preacher, how bad was it? Bad enough that when God showed up, they nailed Him to a cross. Bad enough that they nailed Him to a cross. When Christ came into this world, Israel was in a dire state of spiritual deadness and disrepair. Their religion had been twisted and warped and corrupted to where it looked nothing like what Moses had carried off Sinai. And even the elements of it that may have not been perverted in form had certainly been perverted in spirit and in function. They may have still been going through some motions, but it's transparently true that those that were worshiping for the most part there are exceptions but what religion on the whole in Israel at the time of our Lord's ministry was so far departed from a biblical belief and biblical faith that they were the main contention and the main opponents and the main hostility towards our Lord's earthly ministry he didn't have problems out of the sinners he had problems out of the Sanhedrin he didn't have problems out of the faithless he had problems out of the Pharisees He didn't have problems out of the pagans. He had problems out of the priests. That's the condition that Christ came in the midst of. It's interesting when you study the earthly ministry of our Lord, one of the things that becomes obviously true when you read the gospel accounts with no rose-tinted glasses on is that the ruling class in Israel, they just didn't know what to do with Him. The Bible describes how that He would come and He would begin to teach and they would say, no man ever, no man ever spake like this man spake. They'd say, we never saw it on this wise. So we've never heard teaching like, they'd say, whence cometh this man's power and this man's authority and this man's doctrine? You understand at that time that most of the priests, they engaged predominantly in the trafficking of meaningless questions and rabbinical lore. And then here comes God incarnate in the flesh, not showing up to traffic in questions, but showing up to give truth and answers. It was a radical prospect. I mean, all of a sudden, you've got the, the, the religious leaders of the day. People would come to them and ask them questions, and they wouldn't give them an answer. And then here is this carpenter from Nazareth who stands and teaches and preaches with power and authority and speaks in absolute certitude. They didn't know what to do with him. Now, what does that mean, preacher? Well, here's what happened. Light came into the world, and darkness comprehended it not. They didn't know what to do with him. And you say, well, preacher, is that the Jewish world? Well, it was the whole world. He stood before Pilate. 
I mean, think about that for a moment. The governor sitting on the throne while the king is in chains. Pilate didn't know what to do with him. He sent him to Herod. Herod didn't know what to do with him. He sent him back to Pilate. The world didn't know how to handle the God-man incarnate in flesh. They didn't know what to do with him. So much so that whenever truth is standing there staring Pilate in the eye, the only thing that Pilate can think to ask is, what is truth? What happened? What happened, preacher? Well, he came into a spiritual darkness of unbelief of men whose religion had degraded and disintegrated to such a degree that it was nothing but a hollow shell of a relationship with God. It didn't have any substance and it didn't have any meaning. And it looks a lot like Christianity today. It looks a lot like Christianity today. So many today, they have a vestige of Christianity. Listen, I'm, I'm glad you're here. I, I'm not one of them preachers gets up and mouths off and beats people up when they come on Christmas and everything. I'm, I'm happy you're here. I save that for Easter. Amen. People dealing with enough stress right now. But I will tell you this. If you come here for nothing but ceremony, form, and function, God wants to give you so much more. God wants to do so much more for you. And if you find yourself groping through a world, a a religious cacophony of confusion and bedlam and chaos, can I tell you this morning that though a priest may not have the answer, a preacher may not have an answer, an evangelist may not have an answer, that the Bible has the answer this morning. And you can know the truth of God and the God of truth. I love what the Bible says. Paul nailed it down pretty good, didn't he? In 2 Corinthians 4, 6, he said, For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness. Let me just pause there and say a word about that. I was talking to one, my, my little boy, Schofield, my youngest. He was talking to me, and I can't even remember exactly how he characterized it. But this is, this is essentially what he asked. He said, How did God create the earth if there weren't no people there to see it? That's enough to shut down a Southern Baptist seminary right there. That one question. <laughs> and I, I told him, I said, well, son, people weren't created yet. God created the earth and then he created people. And he said this, how did he do that? And I gave just a simple biblical answer. And then all of a sudden, like a thunderbolt, it hit my heart. I said this, well, he spoke it into existence and he can't lie. So what he speaks becomes reality. You understand how beholden existence itself is to the very truth of God's Word. Amen. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God so that things which, were made, uh, things, uh, which appear were made of things which do not appear. He spoke and it became reality. Yeah. Now listen, you may be sitting there trying to gauge whether or not the Bible contains the truth. And I'm here to tell you it contains the only truth. That doesn't mean there's not truth to be found outside its pages. It means this. This is the predominant truth. And even the existence or concept of true things only can exist because God is a truth speaker. I would say this, that he came to give light to those that were in the spiritual darkness of unbelief. And if you're here today in the deadness of your self-righteousness, in the hopelessness of your own man-made, concocted, formulated Frankenstein religion, I'm here to tell you that God has something better for you. If you'll let the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ into your heart and into your life, God will give you deliverance from that darkness and that confusion.
He came to give light into the spiritual darkness of unbelief. But then number two, I think He came to give light in the societal darkness of unrighteousness. Uh, It was a dark world, morally speaking, at that time. All manner of sin, wickedness, and depravity was running rampant across a Roman pagan world that had no regard for truth and righteousness. We've done a lot to lionize the Roman Empire and Roman culture. And I'm not blind to how much we as Westerners may owe to its dominance and to its prowess. But I'd remind you that uh, the Roman world was a dark place spiritually and morally where all manner of wickedness and degeneracy was not only permitted, but promoted. That's how you got ahead in that world. And then here comes Christ, righteousness incarnate, and shows mankind there's a different way to live. But can I remind you that we're seeing things today that they would have never dreamed of in the Roman Empire of old. We're living in a world so thick and so deep with darkness that it can be felt like the darkness of Egypt. Can I remind you, you don't have to live in that darkness. You don't have to bow to that darkness. You don't have to walk in that darkness. Because we have the light of what true righteousness looks like. I like how uh, the Bible says it in Colossians chapter number 1, verse 12. It says, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son, in whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. What does that mean? Delivered us from the power of darkness, and translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son. If He's translated us, then there is an inverse relationship between these concepts. When you are under the power of darkness, it's because you're in the kingdom of darkness. When you are in the kingdom of His dear Son, it is because you enjoy or experience the power of His dear Son. In other words, this world and its system, its twisted, broken, deadly, poisonous way of thinking will destroy your life. But listen, we don't have to walk and live in that. We have the light of what God expects out of our life. You don't have to raise your family like the world tells you to raise your family. You don't have to teach your kids like the world tells you to teach your kids. You don't, ha- you don't have to have a marriage like the world says you should have a marriage or a lack thereof. You can walk in righteousness because of what Jesus Christ did. I like how Ephesians chapter 2 says it when it describes who we were and what Christ changed about us. It says, and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. In other words, Paul says that used to be your boss. That used to be what governed you. That used to be what guided you. It says, among whom also we all had our conversation in time past, in the lusts of our flesh, doing what we want, right? Fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. You know, one of the great deceptions of Satan is making you, you think you have an agency you don't when you're following him. Politicians are a lot like that. Making you think that you have control over things you don't have control of. That's why if the Son hath made you free, you're free indeed. He really makes you free. Well, what did God do about it? Well, it says this, but God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ by grace, you're saved. 
The light of the gospel shined to break the chains of society's darkness that were latched around your wrists. You don't have to let your life be dictated and determined by this world's systems, values, and philosophies. You can live a life apart from those things. You can live a life free from those things. I'm not advising you or me neither to find ourselves cloistered in some monastery wearing a hair shirt with a vow of silence. Some folks need a vow of silence, but I'm not advising that that's how we live. Hey, instead, we can live in the perfect liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. <laughs> what do we do with that liberty? Well, here's what Paul said we ought to do with it in Romans 6. He said, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourself servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked. Hey, hey, but God be thanked. Hey, hey, but God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. What happened then? Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men, Paul says, because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield ye your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is it, it, oh, it's death. But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness in the end everlasting life. What's Paul saying? He's saying you know where that road leads. You know where that path goes. But thanks be to God, you don't have to walk that path anymore. He has shined a light into your life. I would say he shines light into the societal darkness of unrighteousness. But then number three, I would say he shined the light into the personal darkness of unrest. I'm glad we can have peace. I'm glad we can have peace. I'm glad we don't have to let. I understand. I, I worry about stuff. Ain't no sense in worrying about. You know the old saying, it's like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it don't get you anywhere. I worry. You worry. I preach against worry, and then we still both worry. What's the matter with us? <laughs> but I'm glad we don't have to find ourselves locked in those chains of misery, despair, and unhappiness. Oh, my soul, unhappy Christians are a scourge on a broken world that needs Christ. It's a disgrace to have everything heaven and Christ gives us and not be content and not be happy with it. It ought to be having all that we have that we can find a path and a way to be happy. You know, Christ came to give you joy. It doesn't mean you're going to like everything that happens to you. But it does mean that you can have peace in your heart and in your life. I like how Peter described it in First Peter chapter number 2. He said, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. He'd been to Wall Ridge. A peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people. <laughs> which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. He called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Why? So that you'd show forth the praises of Him. If you have unrest this morning, Christ can give you rest. You say, well, preacher, that's for the unsaved people. No, there remaineth therefore rest for the people of God. There's a lot of people saved that there's a rest available to them, but they ain't resting in it. They're resting in their own intellect, in their own wit, in their own righteousness, in their own, in their own cunning and in their own ability and in their own resources instead of resting in the fullness of Christ. And I'm just here to tell you this morning, hey, you're sitting in that darkness. Christ came to shine a light into your life. 
I would say, number one, he brings a lot of darkness to those uh, that are, or the, brings the light of liberty to those that are in darkness. But then I would say, number two, look, look a little further, verse 79. He says this, to give light to them that sit. And then he lists three conditions. The first is those that sit in darkness. But notice the second, to give light to them that sit in the shadow of death. He brings the light of liberty to those that are in darkness. But I would say, number two, he brings the light of life to those that are under death. I'm glad death does not win. I'm glad death does not win. If we were to characterize in a few simple words the three critical moments of the life of Jesus Christ, it would be this, that when we, when we look at, at, at His incarnation, it is a testimony that life always overcomes death. If we look at Calvary, it's a, it's a confirmation that love always overcomes death. You say, well, preacher, what about the resurrection? It's another confirmation that life always overcomes death. In other words, it reminds us of the great victory that God has over the foe of death. The last enemy that shall be defeated is death. But praise God, he's going to get his. He's going to get his. He's going to get his. You say, preacher, are you suggesting death is a person that he is personified? If he is, I hope God hits him in the mouth. I've stood beside too many grieving families to not hate death. I've stood over too many caskets being lowered to not hate death. I've stood in too many tear-soaked emergency rooms to not hate death. I hate death. And I'm glad that God gives us victory over it. <laughs> How does He do that? Well, let me just say this. First, in John 8, 12, He told us that He would give us this light. Then spake Jesus unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth Me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And you know, if you don't have life from God, you don't have the kind of life you need. Theologians can debate endlessly about the concept of once saved, always saved, or the eternal security of the believer. Your Bible is settled about the matter, uh, that when God saves a man, he don't go back on that. He saves them eternally. Uh, God knew what you were when he saved you. He knew what you were when he bought you, when he died for you. Uh, but I'm always reminded, and Lester Olaf had a way, I think, of solving age-old theological conundrums. He uh, one time said, somebody asked him, said, do you believe in once saved, always saved? He said, I want to ask you something. He said, uh, where did you get your life? If you have spiritual life, where'd you get it from? And the person replied, well, I got it from God. I believed on the Lord. He gave me life. He said, what kind of life does God have? Does he have temporary life or does he have eternal life? Is he a temporary God or is he an eternal God? The person, then he was catching on, but he had to answer if he was to be honest. He said, well, he has eternal life. He says, if that's the kind of life that God has and that's the kind of life you got from him, he gives everlasting life. He gives eternal life. There's no comparison to the life that God gives both in time and in eternity. And here we're reminded that He gives life to those that are under the sentence of death. In what way does He do this? Well, I would say, number one, He delivers us from the force of death. And that is its price. Now, let me read a little scripture. I think you'll understand what I mean. Christ came and He died for us. Why did He have to die for us? Well, because you and I owed a, a, a sin debt. We were sinners and sin has consequences. Sin doesn't have consequences because God wants it to. Sin has consequences because it has consequences. Uh, sin doesn't have consequences because God's mad at you or mad about you. Sin has consequences because it has consequences. Sin is disobedience or walking contrary to God, who He is and what He says. He's the God of life. He is life. Uh, listen, I, the, mm, I might get this said here in just a moment, and I might help you. I don't know. 
But you understand that walking in darkness is just the necessary condition of those that refuse light. The darkness is not cold because the light is petulant. The darkness is not cold because the light's angry at it. The darkness is cold because that's the necessary condition of it not being light. You understand that sin, God is life. To live contrary to Him is to embrace death. And so the wages of sin is death. When Christ died on the cross of Calvary, he's rectifying that problem. Listen to what it says in Romans chapter 6. It says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Charismatics say, sure. But God says, God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. You see, you understand that when all there was was you and your flesh, that God, if he was going to destroy your body in judgment of that sin, would have had to destroy you in judgment of that sin. But now we are a new creature in Christ Jesus. We are not altogether identified with the reality of that infirm condition. We still are plagued by it, but thank the Lord that one day He's going to give us a new body that is not plagued by a sinful condition. <laughs> For he that is dead is freed from sin. I've never, I've, I've never had a single problem out of a church member once I've got him in a casket. Not a single one. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over Him. For in that he died, he died of sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise reckon ye yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I can't even describe to you the beauty and poignance and brilliance of the heavenly wisdom of God in the cross of Calvary. You understand that death had a dominion over mankind. Because we are sinners, we are bound to death. It is our fate. It is our destiny. It is the due wages of our unrighteousness. And I would imagine that the devil and death looked at broken, lost mankind and thought no man can break those chains. If you want to deal with their sin, God, then you'll have to kill them to deal with their sin. Oh, my soul, could you imagine the look on the devil's face when God looked from heaven and said, Oh, no, Satan, I have found a way where there was no way. I have found a way. You think I can only do it by killing them, but I can do it by killing me and then raising incorruptible from the dead so that my righteousness is given for their righteousness and their sin is paid for in my death. Therefore, hey, he can be both just and the justifier of them that come unto God by Jesus Christ. He dealt with the price of your sin, the payment of your sin. He bought you out when he died on Calvary. (laughs) The wages of sin is death. But thank God, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I think He came to give us light to deliver us from the force of death, its price, but number two, from the fear of death and its power. Death has a hold over mankind. If you don't believe that, look at the past few years. I'm not being political and I'm not being snotty about it. 
But anybody that won't acknowledge that mankind's fear of the prospect of death, whether justified or not, literally grounds civilization to a halt. Ground things to a halt. I'm not mad at your caution. I'm not mad at your opinion. I hope you're not mad at my opinion. But I will just tell you this, that one of the things that Christ came to do was to ensure that death never again hold over the believer the power of his mind and his heart. Never again to be tormented and terrorized by its prospect. Now you say, preacher, you're not excited and ready to die. Well, number one, if you're a Baptist preacher, you've got to live ready to die. You've got enough enemies. You've got to live ready to die. But no, you're right. I, I have many things I want to do. And I want to see my boys grow up. i got one of them I'm confident knows the Lord. And my little fella, I don't, I don't know where his heart is. I don't believe that he's saved yet. I don't know how much he understands yet. But I want to see them both get, uh, be saved and, and, and grow up and, and serve the Lord if God tarries. I, I've got things I want to see. But you understand that loving life is not the same thing as fearing death. Right. Amen. I love living for the Lord. And I love what God's doing in my life. But I'll not bow the knee to death anymore. I'll not live in anxiety and fear of it. I'm not saying I covet it. I'm not saying I lust after it. I'm saying I don't bow before it anymore. Why, preacher? Because God came, Christ came to deliver me from that fear. Hebrews chapter 2 says it this way, and I'll say this, and it's enough said. It says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. I've, got, I've been accused of having an overactive imagination. Anybody likewise afflicted? Sometimes I like to think about the things my Bible talks about. One of my favorite verses, I've mentioned this several times here lately. I don't know why it's on my mind, but I've mentioned several times. The Bible tells us in the book of Acts that Christ was not able to be holden of death. It was an impossibility that he not get up from death. And I just sort of imagined for a moment. And if you want my honest opinion, I guess I don't want to be coy. I don't believe that death is a personified person. I believe it is a reality that Christ has dealt with. I, but if we were to imagine for a moment that he was, you could imagine death trying to wrap its arms around and grab hold of, of each and every person that walks under its shadow. And oh, how many people it's been able to wrap in that cold embrace. I've got, I, listen, all four grandparents' death wrapped its arms around them. I, I've got loved ones and friends and family member that death wrapped its arms around them. And then you imagine the day when death wrapped its arms around the blessed Son of God and could tell something was wrong. <laughs> like Samson shaking off the ropes of the Philistines, Christ shook death off and rose incorruptible. You say, preacher, that's good for him. No, that's good for me. That's good for me because that's my Messiah, that's my Savior, that's my Lord, that's my Christ that has done that. And He has imparted that sort of life to me. In other words, I don't have to live in fear of death. But then he came to deliver us from the fate of death. Now, somebody will say, well, now, preacher, I know all kinds of people that know the Lord that die, as do I. In fact, everyone I've ever known that knows the Lord, uh, if they're not here, that's why. Amen. I don't know none of them that got caught up in chariots. <laughs> but I will say this, that because he delivered us from the fear of death, he has transformed the fate of death into a new thing altogether. 
Listen to how Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. He's talking about death. He's not describing a soul sleep like the Adventists and and different people describe the idea of an unconsciousness. That's not that's not uh, cohesive with scriptural teaching and doctrine. Paul said to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. And he anticipated seeing his Lord whenever he met him. So he's not talking about a soul sleep, but he's talking about the sleep of the body. He's saying that for the believer, death is like the body just going to sleep. He says this, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. We shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. And this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall it be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? He's imagining what it'll be like on that day when he pillows his head on the on the grace of God into eternity. And, and he had lived his whole life, everybody telling him how scared of it he needed to be. And he says, death, where is thy sting? I thought it was supposed to sting. He said, instead, it feels like a homecoming. Oh, grave, where is thy victory? He said, I thought this would feel like a defeat, but I feel like I'm marching through the gates victorious myself. Why is that? Because the sting of death is sin. Christ dealt with that. The strength of sin is the law. Christ fulfilled and finished that. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, one day, if the Lord tarries, I, and I, we always say that. He said he'd tarry, he'd come and not tarry, but you know what I mean. If I get out of here before he comes to get me, I'll go by way of death. I understand that. And the same is true for you. But you know, Paul said this, we sorrow not as others which have no hope. He doesn't mean we sorrow not. He's saying when we do sorrow, we sorrow not as others which have no hope. In other words, we we believe by the word of the Lord that the Lord is going to raise us incorruptible. We understand that we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. It's a source of comfort to know. And listen, you may you may be living here under the heavy chains of fear of death today. And if you're lost without Christ, you have every reason to be. You should be scared of death. You're a heartbeat or a missed one away from eternity. But you know, through the grace of God, through the promise of God, through the truth of the gospel, you can be delivered from that. God can shine the light of life into your heart today. I'm glad He brings He brings light uh, to those, the light of liberty to those that sit in darkness, and He brings the light of life to those that sit under death. But then I would notice the last phrase, and I'm done. I'm not even going to preach it. I'm just going to mention it. You believe that? Okay. Verse 79, to give light. Why did He give light? Well, He gives light for this reason, to guide our feet into the way of peace. I'd say this, that He brings the light of leadership to those that are without direction. He tells us how we ought to live. Now, as long as you think you're doing pretty good living on your own, that won't interest you much. But about the time you hit the bottom, and about the time that all the the cows come home to roost, isn't that how it goes? 
about the time that that happens, you're going to start looking around looking for somebody to to steer this thing better than you have. And I'm glad to report to you that God has given us leadership and direction in our life. Think with me for two things real quick. Number one, I just want to notice what the Bible says about the results of natural guidance. Preacher, I can run my own life. I have found almost invariably that people that insist on running their own lives are terrible at it. Have you found that to be true? It's my own life. Nobody can tell me what to do. Well, my soul, somebody should look at you. (laughs) Most people that are drunk on that notion are the people that need somebody to tell them what to do more than anybody. Well, here's the reality about what will happen if you run your own life. Proverbs chapter 16 says this, There is a way that seemeth right unto a man. Now, I want to pause there for a moment. I want to notice what your Bible says. And I want to notice what it doesn't say. He doesn't say there's a way that seemeth wrong unto a man, but he goes ahead and does it anyway. That's a lot of people. A lot of people know it's wrong. They do it anyway. He doesn't say there's a way that people tell a man is right. It doesn't say there's a way that some people think is right. It says there is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. I can't tell you the conversations I've had with people. And I'll say, do you know that you're going to heaven when you die? Do you know that you're a a, a Christian? Do you know that you've been saved? I'm not asking if you go to church anywhere. I'm asking if you died right now, do you believe you'd meet God face to face as a Christian, that your sins have been forgiven? And they'll say things like, well, I'm all right. And I always wonder what that means. I'm all right. Listen, if some people's all right is all right, I want to be all wrong. (laughs) And they'll say, well, I'm all right. I'm all right. And I'll often ask this question, why do you think that? And that question rarely gets any sort of substantive answer. Say, well, I just think I am. Is it possible that you could think you're right and be entirely, completely, totally wrong? If you're not willing to accept that, you must have just stepped out of the womb this morning. Because it doesn't take long to learn that you can be 100% convinced you're right about something and be miserably, embarrassingly, devastatingly wrong about it. You better make sure that the biggest decisions you're making in life are based upon something better than your intuition or your instinct. There's a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Preacher, I'll follow my heart. Well, what does the Bible say about that? Jeremiah 17, 9 says it's deceitful. Your heart will deceive you. It'll tell you things that aren't true. It'll tell you things that aren't so. It's deceitful above all things. Well, preacher, it wouldn't do that to me. It loves me. No, Jeremiah says it's desperately wicked. Your heart will not help you. Your heart will deceive you. That's the results of natural guidance. Well, what did Christ change or what did he do for us or what has he given us that can help us with that problem? Well, think with me about the resources that he gives us for spiritual guidance. God's given us three things that as believers, we don't have to stumble about life wondering what to do. One of the things he's given us is heavenly supplication. He hears and answers our prayers. We have a high priest seated at the right hand of the Father, and he ever liveth to make intercession for us. That's why the writer of Proverbs says, We ought to trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding, and all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Be not wise in thine own eyes, fear the Lord, and depart from evil. What does it mean to acknowledge him? It means to ask him about it. Ask Him to pray about it, to consider Him and to seek Him. It's the reason the Lord, when He taught His disciples to pray, one of the things He taught them to pray was this, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
Because in and of our own selves, we don't know how to stay out of trouble. But we can seek the Lord and the Lord can guide us. Heavenly supplication. I think a second thing he's given us is the Holy Scriptures. Psalms 119, 105. You probably quoted it. If you grew up ever saying a pledge of the Bible, you quoted it, you know it, and you don't even know that you know it. It says this, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The word of God gives us truth. Could you imagine what an astounding and embarrassing privilege it is to have God's wisdom and words for our life? Astounding that God loves us that much. Embarrassing that we so rarely apply it to our lives. The world has to bumble around trying to trust gurus and politicians and people on YouTube to figure out how to live. But you and I can go to the Word of God and learn how to live. <laughs> and then I would say, number three, He's given us, if you're saved, He's given us His Spirit to guide us. Christ said He would do this in John chapter 14. He said, I will pray the Father. He shall give you another comforter that He may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth. He tells us the truth. The Spirit of God won't ever lie to you. That's why he'll always agree with the Bible. He may not agree with the latest, greatest evangelist or, 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 you know, nondescript, interdenominational, global, collective, cooperative, whatever nonsense, but he'll always agree with the Bible because he's the spirit of truth. He says this in verse 26, the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. In other words, he'll guide us in our life. Say, preacher, what will that produce in us? Well, here's what Romans chapter number 8 says it'll produce. It says, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. He'll make you like Jesus if you'll follow Him in your life. Here's what I'm saying this morning. You might be sitting in some semblance of darkness today, but you don't have to sit there in darkness. The Lord Jesus Christ and the precious Word of God and the Gospel of Calvary shines a light into your life and into your heart if you'll be willing to receive it today. That means if you're lost, you need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved, and He'll save you today. Listen, I could promise you He will, and I'm not afraid to do it, but it's not my promise that matters. He promises He'll do that. To as many as received Him, to them gave you power to become the sons of God, even to them which believe on His name. If you'll believe on Him, He'll save you today and give you light in your life. You might be here today, and you're under the grip of society's darkness society's system. You say, well, preacher, you're talking to lost people. No, sadly, I'm talking to a lot of saved people too that think they have to live and operate the way the world dictates. You don't have to. You can live in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made you free. You might be here under personal darkness, despair, depression, discouragement. Uh, you, You might be struggling with some things today. I don't judge you. I don't condemn you. I just call you to come to Christ and let His light warm your heart and your life give you peace and give you clarity today. Whatever your need is, I hope you'll come to the heavenly sunrise and let Him shine a light into your life today. Let's bow together this morning. A musician's going to play, but the altar is open right now. You don't have to wait a moment. If God touched your heart about a matter, why don't you slip out of your seat right now and meet the Lord in this altar? I'd be happy to pray with you. Other people would. But it's really not me that you need. It's the Lord this morning. He'll come, listen, he'll meet with you if you'll come to him. Preacher, I wouldn't even know what to say. You ain't, at, listen, you ain't at the talking point yet. Won't you just slip out and come down? And I promise you, when you kneel before him and you open your heart to him, he'll give you the words to say. Just be honest with him. Tell him the truth about what you need, about what you're struggling with this morning. And he'll be everything you need and more, I promise you. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify Christ. We ask it in his name.